Good afternoon, and not good morning, uh, everybody. Welcome to day two of the forum. My name is Omar Khalif, who also goes by the, one of the nom de plumes, uh, Dr. O, during the course of the forum. And this year's forum, the 10th anniversary edition, is called To Catch Flying Horses from the Sky, The Impossible Task of Dreaming in the Present. And this title came from a Kashmiri proverb that was really about trying to imagine the impossible task of what it means to actually exist and experience each other in the moment and to talk not merely about the past or speculating into the future, but actually creating propositions for the here and now, for how we as artists and practitioners working, how we make and do what it is that we do. It's also a summoning of a sort and an invitation for us to look inwards and to extend beyond the bounds of the future, to think collectively of how do we imagine. Accordingly, this forum is very much about creating a toolkit. And when I say that, each session is constructed as a kind of proposition from a different set of experiences. And we invite you in the Q&A aspect or session to not only ask questions, but also to post statements or responses from your own sets of experiences. And then at the end, um, there's also a paper and pen that is circulated that is collected that you can also anonymously write. Yesterday, we gathered about 50 responses, which were ranged from the obscene to the emotional. So it was quite wonderful to think about that. And the idea is that those um, suggestions are gathered together into a future publication. So what is it that we're here to do? Or what is it that I've attempted to try and conceive of bringing us all together? Well, it's something that I mentioned yesterday in our closing session of Autobahn Nakanga, which is to invoke what Adrian Rich had mentioned, which is the possibility to dream of a common language, which is something that we will also be exploring not only in this first session, but in our next session, the Poetry Salon, where five different voices will be in conversation, interleaving. So we begin the day with a conversation, an animation, with Smooth and Zeri, who is joining us today from New York. Move is an artist, an art historian, and a curator who currently serves as the inaugural Stephen and Lisa Tannenbaum Curator in the Department of Paintings, Painting, not Paintings, and Sculpture at the Museum of Modern Art. And previous to that, held positions at the Hood Museum at Dartmouth College, as well as the Cleveland Art Museum. In terms of what we want to ask, or what I would like to explore in this session, have you ever considered what it means to be both or more. Not merely on the outside looking in, but on the inside looking in on the outside, looking in and around and everywhere without the ability to focus, to anchor or locate one's senses. I think that 
the first the, the provocation or, or invitation that will begin our session might proffer open up a space for that dialogue. Welcome, Smoo. Thank you, to the forum at 1.54. Thank you. So when I uh, invited you to speak today, I mentioned a few kind of points. One about the dualities of being multiple things at once, occupying and embodying things, feeling things, but also not necessarily being able to express them. And you responded with a proposition to show a film of yours that was made in collaboration or with interludes from friends of yours. And would you like to tell us about that? So, um, yeah, so when Omar, when we started having this conversation about what's about uh, the forum at 154, one of the things we have in common is that I mean, we are, we're both artists, we're, we are, we're also academics, you know, and, and one of the things she asked me to think about was what would be a very good prompt for the conversation, and you said that for some it would be music, it might be dance, it might be um, an artwork, you know, and I gave it some thought, and then I... I remember the film that I made when I was in graduate school. <laughs> it's called Doppelganger, uh, which really captures exactly what you want us to talk about. It's, uh, it's me in conversation with me. You know? So you see uh, what you see in the film, which has three different cuts, but we're showing one, one cut where a cut with the sound, lands, uh, the Lego soundscape by Emeka Obo. And the other installment, uh, you would actually see me in a dialogue with myself, an internal dialogue. And I'll be riffing, in that book which has not been screened, I'll be riffing through my native language, which is Igbo, formal English, and Pidgin, which is a sort of a certain kind of lingua franca in, in, in West Africa. So you see me in dialogue in three languages, talking to myself. And then also you see a transition from the artist to, to the academic. And then you also get a sense of the way in which we think about knowledge production as a form of psychological violence on the individual mm. when you go through that process mm. of trying to be informed in, in the academy. And so you will see me lost in the bohemian lifestyle of the artist where you had that freedom to move through spaces, to make friends in different ways, and how the academia is so structured and rigid mm. because it's not exactly about exposing you to ideas you know, a PhD is actually training you to think in a certain way, mm. you know. And when you go through that process, which is actually very damaging, you know, you realize that you begin to find it difficult to actually be a free thinker, no matter what the academia claims, you know. You think in a very structured way, you know. But the freedom to actually allow your mind to roam mm. is actually dampened through that process of being trained exactly. to think about knowledge through certain lenses and the very in, in true strictures, you know. And so what I tried to do in that film is to, which I, I think I made that film in my uh, three years at the graduate school, was to, th to sort of cast my mind back to the first two years of graduate school and how I was trying to process that experience that was really, really very difficult. So that's the summary. <laughs> Yeah, that's a summary of it. Yeah. I think we'll play that film for you now. 
It's about nine minutes. Yeah, roughly nine, eight, nine minutes. <laughs> so I, 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 I like sitting like this. Sorry, <laughs> guys. But, um, <laughs> it's just like really, it's nice to look at you. Because I, I just feel like I've uh, entered into uh, your past of <clears throat> 10, 12 years ago. And I just I have to ask this one question, which is burning in me, which is, you went to Hotlanta, right? What we called it once upon a time, Atlanta, Emory, to become a doctor, right? Like a, a PhD doctor, and it's an experience of that many, for many, can be isolating. But what, what all I could think about watching this now, the the, the third time, was what was the impetus that pushed you to that specific pursuit at that moment in your life after having been an artist and curator working on the continent in Nigeria and Senegal going to this co context then? Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I'm going to roll back to my, the beginnings of my, my life story. So um, I trained as an artist at the University of Nigeria in Soka. I was a student of Ellen Atsui, um, which is open knowledge. Mm. And in my time, um, actually, I did my first, I curated my first show as an art student, which was really looking at the, uh, the Biafran War, uh, the Civil War in Nigeria in 67 to 1970. It was actually my first uh, outing as a curator. And so when I graduated from art school, late 1990s, early 2000s, there were no curators in Nigeria. That's the, the honest truth. You had uh, a network of galleries, commercial galleries, basically selling, selling art in Lagos. And I joined an artist association called the Pan-African Circle of Artists, you know, which actually formed how I think about the work I do. You know, uh, Pan-Africanism is something that is very central to the work I do, and in part, uh, it, it's because of that journey from the, from the get-go. And so it was a small artist association with ambitions to, uh, to connect the rest of the continent, you know. And so what, one of the things we began to do in the very beginnings, uh, we began to make exhibitions. So in the very beginning, I'll describe myself as an exhibition maker. I would make exhibitions. Um, and then there was a, an absence of publishing mm -hmm. in Nigeria. And we would pull money together on very shoe, shoestring <laughs> budgets to put together little publications, you know. Mm -hmm. And even at that time, we also had what we call the Africa Heritage Biennial, which I'm sure no one knows about, you know. Uh, but it was inspired by the Dakar Biennale, for example, you know. So I think on the continent, this was the first, the activities of the Pan-African Circle of Artists that was established in 1991 was actually the first time on the continent an artist association, artist group mm -hmm. actually started a biennial, you know, before you saw others, including Sami Balogi and Picha doing a biennial, you know. And so, because there were, there were no curators in Lagos, I, and, I, and the more I made, I made exhibitions with this group, I realized that I, when I could put two works in dialogue, I didn't have the language to describe the work, you know, mm. uh, this funny language, you know. Um, and so in the course of travels, uh, even spending time in South Africa, I, I did a program on museum studies in South Africa, you know, uh, on that journey. And at some point, it was a question of do I go in for a master's in, in curatorial studies? I was looking at Bard College, uh, but then I was advised by 
someone who I would now consider a mentor, in addition to folks in South Africa, Sirad Rasu and others, to, uh, to do a PhD. Mm. And um, that's how I landed in Hotlanta. Hotlanta. <laughs> yeah. So that's sort of the story. So the absence of um, a cu uh, curator in Nigeria, at that point, BC Silva was still moving between Lagos and London. Mm -hmm. She hadn't really landed uh, in, in Lagos. She would, she would bring people in to do talks in art schools in Nigeria. That was how actually I met BC. I met her when I was still an art student, when she brought Eddie Chambers and a few people to Tunsuka. Um, that's how I met, I met her. But she was moving between Lagos and London, and at some point she, she did leave the art scene for a brief moment uh, and before she, she set up, she then set up the uh, Center for Contemporary at Lagos, you know. And so that absence was what sort of um, inspired my trajectory uh, to, to, to Emory, basically. I mean, another reason that I asked was purely selfish because I, you know, didn't want to personally become an academic or mm. to write peer-reviewed articles or mm. to, 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 to become a doctor. And actually, I only started to put doctor in front of my name when I started working basically at home in Egypt because it gave me some status other than what was deemed to be just crazy person who does art, crazy art things that right. I don't know. And it was, you know, the closest that I could appease my father, which was to say, you know, I have this title, right? Mm -hmm. But it still wasn't, if it wasn't Oxford, then it doesn't mean anything. But I think but, but the reason I mentioned that anecdote is that it is important to think about the way that knowledge is produced in, in practice, right. you know, uh, as a practitioner versus the way that knowledge is produced in those halls and in those very dry stationary seats that you see in the lecture hall. Mm. And I think Ottobong Nakanga always talks about, in relation to her work, the concept of a flow. And I feel like the flow of knowledge production in, in academic institution is really, it just is back and forth and back and forth again, for me and my experience, in that unless you can substantiate and validate everything with existing sets of knowledge which are epistemically we all know have been are violent in that in their predetermined ontology how then do you think that we move that flow or break that flow to bring in different forms of discourse because essentially what we research and what we talk about is not necessarily sanctioned within the academy so how do we break that that the rigidity or how do we deal with it because the, the character of you in this work is kind of it's somewhat unresolved this kind of the, the looking back and forth and it, from what I took from it was that you have to be both to be able to you have to keep both aspects of yourself to be able to subsist so curious if you could reflect on that yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I think you, 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 uh, you, you basically summarized um, it in a very succinct way. I mean, there's a Nigerian um, historian who describes what we do in the academia as ancestor worship, mm -hmm. you know, meaning that... Um, ancestor worship. Ancestor worship, meaning that the way we think about knowledge is to basically either reaffirm what someone has said 
mm. uh, find a different way to say the same thing the person has said, uh, in a bit to sound smart, and in a bit to, and that's why we always have the literature review all the time, you know, mm. basically to pay homage <laughs> to, uh, to ancestors. And then also you have instances where, uh, especially if you were going to the graduate program where there's an expectation that you're, you're, you're expected to cite certain people, you know, in the absence of citing those people, uh, whatever you write is deemed as um, not uh, legitimate enough, you know. And as we know, uh, in most instances, uh, when we do ancestor worship uh, in our field, we pay homage to those who created the field of African arts. And those who created the field of African arts as an academic discipline mm -hmm. and not folks like mm -hmm. yourself or myself or folks in the room, you know, they're very often they're not. Um, white folks um, in, in the American Academy, it was uh, the Peace Corps generation mm. that uh, established um, African art history, or African art, even African studies, as mm. we know, um, which is fascinating because they, there was a moment in, in, in the American Academy where uh, the field of African studies, African history, was really uh, pioneered by African-Americans. Mm. Um, and then when the Peace Corps generation uh, arrived on the scene, uh, it was basically snatched from them, and then it became uh, sort of the playground of, mm. of um, white America. In the same way, you had the Bill Fogg and all this in the UK running the, the, the discipline of African arts, you know. And so um, when you speak to, so for example, when I speak to Odilia Dita, the artist, uh, whose father was also an artist and also an art historian, um, he would always talk about how when his father was in graduate school at Indiana University, uh, Roy Sieber will have to explain his Onitsha tradition to him, you know. <laughs> you know? And so you, I think part of that, and if, if, you, if you are, when you go through uh, the academy, the academy in that sense, uh, this is where the, the, the damage and violence comes, where you have to learn to speak you through another person. You know, uh, it's very jarring, mm. where it, it's, um, it's, it basically shatters your sense of self, where you want to talk about you, mm. and then someone tells you, no, this is how you talk about you. you and, know? and that's where I often, I mean, my, my trajectory is, has been between, in terms of the majority of my professional work between mm. the US and the UK, although in, with, a, with a gap, in, in West Asia, if we can call it that. But the, the thing is, is that that's when I think this idea of speaking about yourself through someone else's language, but also someone else's accent, someone else's performed notion of self, mm -hmm. that's an act of code switching. Yeah. And code switching is deemed as a, a necessary act of survival. And what, what, I, what, what I think has happened in the last 20 years is that the, the way that people code switch has become more apparent. I don't think that it's in any way become that we have been invited to be more true in terms of how we express ourselves, but rather we can perform our different selves. And I just think of you know, a very simple idea of Barack Obama the way he might, you know, shake, you know, the white uh, basketball coach's 
hand in a very kind of stern-like way and then changes his body language as he approaches the basketball players who are people of colour. And that's often cited as a key example of code switching. But there are you know, so many other spaces in culture where code switching has been discussed. But one of my questions in relation to this is, as curators who also dovetail into the academic field and who have made or seek to make artistic practice um, or maintain that, we also have to give voice in a sense, right? Uh, and I, one of the things that I'm often told is my duty as a curator when I'm, say, presenting an artwork for acquisition is to represent the inherent kind of truth of what the intention of this work is. And I find that can be very difficult when the frameworks and the languages that we speak of are preordained. And it's very, it's a, it can be as simple as, oh, the Tate acquired this and MoMA acquired this. Thus, we must acquire this now before it is too late, even if it's something of our own culture. I would like to hear how, as a, as a curator who works on building collections and presenting artists, you know, from your own context, how you negotiate uh, the expression of truth versus playing these multiple roles that are required of you, including holding a job title that has you know, an endowed name of two people who you may know well or you may not know well. It depends on if... I know them. <laughs> anyway. But that's, that, I mean, that's, again, a very, very uh, brilliant question, and especially with um, sort of the notion of code switching, which I know I, I did discuss in an October General article, which we all do, you know, um, because it's a, a requirement for survival, especially when you, you're working in exile, basically, mm -hmm. you know. And so for me, um, I mean, I think I've now worked in three American institutions uh, with different remits. So the Hood Museum was a teaching museum. And so when you make acquisitions, uh, the things you think about is really how that work can be deployed in service of education, teaching uh, young people, you know. Uh, and so um, when I think about acquisition in that context, I think, um, I think, I think about a work that can live on its own, but also a work that can be used for the, the purpose of education and the way it is expected going, going into that acquisition. And so Cleveland, uh, it, it changed a little bit. Um, and then at MoMA, it's totally different. And so to really to answer your question directly, um, we know in the American context that the way in which you interpret an art is very, it's form, formalist, you know, it's the Grimbegian formalism. So it's, it's um, and very often than not, that language of formalism is, is culturally produced even when, when people choose not to um, mm. accept that fact that it's culturally produced. You speak uh, in that way because your culture enables you to speak in that way. When we speak, when we speak relationships, when we speak uh, form, when we speak art in, in Africa, we speak it differently, you know? And, and so it's always a question again, how do I maintain a fidelity to the object in question, mm -hmm. the artist, and also the expectation of the institution, because the institution will say, uh, how does this work fit within mm. our collection? That's always 
the point the institution mm -hmm. will make, how does it fit within our collection. So it's either you become disingenuous in terms of how you make acquisitions, make decisions around what to collect, or you, which I always do, I remind myself of my responsibility to not just the object of art, but also my responsibility to representation. You know, those two things are very key when I make those decisions. And so, because in my work, um, as we all know, there have been absence of African representations, for instance, uh, in institutions in the West. Um, when you collect one African artist or non-Western artist, it's just a deep into the ocean. And so part of my argument is that you have to place that artist in context, you know, and so, um, if I have an Ibrahim El Salahi in my collection, I should have a Kamalai Shag, mm. I should have a, a Meshibrin, because I, have to, I should be able to show mm. uh, the context in which they produce the Khartoum School, for example, yeah. in the collection. And then I'll think about El Salahi transnationally. He was part of the Mbari group mm. in Nigeria. So how do I place him in context with, say, a Valentin Malankatana from Mozambique, mm. or Nucho Keke mm. from Nigeria, you know? Um, and then how do I place them in conversation and dialogue with their peers uh, in Senegal, for example, uh, Ibanjai, uh, Papa Ibratal, or Liolo in Congo, you know? you know? Because in that way, you want to give, you want to represent the fullness of their humanity in those collections, you know? Similar to what we do with Picasso, Brack, and others, and Matisse, mm -hmm. you represent them in the fullness of what their practice meant in the moment they were producing. I mean, it's interesting because you, what you're saying is, is truly what any exhibition often does of an mm. artist, which is to situate mm. an artist's work within context. But the knowledge that, that you're expressing now is situated and mm. specific to you. And one of the questions that I am often posed with is, why don't you collect certain kinds of artists? Or why don't you look into this specific notion? And the reality is, even though the Museum of Modern Art as a brand or as an identity might profess to represent all modern and contemporary culture, it is truly an impossible task or, or, or feat to do so. The same with the Tate Modern and so forth. And uh, so I always kind of I heed kind of the, that question by saying, you know, originally I'd say, well, just to have one, you know, al-Salahi is okay because it's a, it's a step in a direction but over time like you say that notion of situating al-Salahi in context with Ishag and Shibrin etc and then, and then the, the trans cultural and transnational movements just within the continent beyond internationally but how then do, how then do we focus the energies and the resources when we work in Western institutions, let's say, and we want and we want to we want to work with these artists, how do we develop the frameworks of understanding and resource to accommodate that? Because we know that there is a scarcity of those resources. And why should those things be in the West and not in the continent itself? You're asking tough questions. Yeah. <laughs> it's Sunday, baby. All right. So, see, um, when I make an acquisition, uh, again, so again, it's about the, the double here, mm. not, not just uh, me, uh, the, the, the double as 
the curator artist, um, whatever artist they're in. But it's a double in the sense that um, I'm always very mindful, um, and I say this to myself uh, consistently, um, if I were to acquire, say, uh, 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 Mohamed Malay, for instance, I also want to ensure that Mohamed Malay lives in in Morocco, for example, mm. you know, I want I want I want a robust representation mm. of Malahi in Morocco, you know, and and I've been in situations where I've been I have to uh, make very tough decisions where you know artists in general, you know, and this is where I, I put myself out of the picture and want to think through the psychology of the artist. And the work that comes to my mind that captures what I, I will explain now is uh, the work of Heather Yumbi, mm -hmm. the Cameroonian artist, uh, Totems to My Dreams, where he had this. Mm -hmm. Totems uh, constructed out of uh, the popular Ghana's go bags, uh, with imprints of the big the big museums of the world, the Tate, the MoMA, mm. uh, the SF MoMA, and others, and then with key uh, works, uh, fetishized works like um, Damien Hirst uh, skull and all of mm. that, you know, and basically, and then images of uh, contemporary African artists wearing Ray-Ban glasses, mm -hmm. with um, dollar and pound and euro signs on them. You know, when you speak with an artist, you know, uh, an artist would say, I want to be in the MoMA, I want mm. to be in Tate, you know. So what that explains is sort of the structure of uh, sort of the political economy of the art world, mm. you know, uh, and where value accrues mm. and where extractions occur, basically, you know. And so I'm very mindful of that. And so when I think about the double is... I want to ensure that the Kamalai Shag is well represented in Sudan, but I also understand that the Kamalai Shag wants to be at the MoMA or at the Tate. You know, there's the personal choice of the artist because the artist wants to be uh, seen in context mm. with their peers mm. in the so-called global, global art institutions. And until we, in, in Africa, for instance, begin to build out our own institutions and, and are able to convince either our elites who still are not blind mm. uh, or individuals who are also well-resourced on the continent to really pay attention to, um, to our collective patrimony, which is what art is, mm. then we still have a lot of work to do. And then I know the next question you ask me is, why are you in the West and not somewhere in Africa? No, I actually was not going to ask that. I mean, I assume that the, re the reason that that happens is um, accidental because I often find that everything that's happened to me in my career has been accidental. I, didn't, I still do not like the word curator. I don't want to use it. And I became a curator by accident. I, never, I, I was a documentary filmmaker who worked at a festival, was doing fi fine art, and then there was this position and it had curator in the title. And then it just moves from there. Mm -hmm. And it's strange that one might not... I, I find it... What I find very difficult, actually, about doing this job is that is something that we touched upon a little bit with Koyo yesterday, is how much you can put into something that, and then you become invisible uh, sometimes. But beyond that is I, as a person, what I have produced is invisible because I am now in service of others is what curator to some degree assumes. And I just find that really difficult. And only few curators have transcended that 
with a very bulimic approach to uh, publishing and curating um, that, I mean, for me, there was only Okui who could really, I could really, really say, was able to, to create an incredible enigmatic force field around himself. Consider, considering also he had no formal education and beyond, you know, studying in, in a New York State college and beginning his career as a poet. But still, we don't ever ask now, and I say this as someone who has some insight, we don't ask, can we read Okwi's poetry? And that's a question, is like, well, why don't we want to read that? Because that may have informed X, Y, Z. True. Um, and that, that's just, so I, I often find that the assumption of why we become exiled is our accidents, but also sometimes necessities of survival that can be very personal, that maybe you wouldn't want to share. Um, so but my, before I open up to ask you for your comments, questions, uh, angry uh, incantations, uh, whatever you would like to propose, is actually you do make a very valid point, which is, you know, yes, the issue of... I, I, I am often troubled by the fact that we are, are arguing for the restitution of certain objects to the continent when our contemporary culture is being funded by patrons who sit on acquisition committees at state museums, such as in this country, funded by people who sit on a chair and pay £15,000 to buy our work to keep it here. And I think they should use their own state money to buy it and deem this better than a Hearst or an Emin or whatever. I, do, I find it really difficult that the same person I'll ask to fund an exhibition in Cairo or in anywhere that isn't the BMF machine, and they would say, no, even Chicago, right? You know, I sat in that chair. You know, I took that job in Chicago because the Manalo chair was, you know, was mythologized as a Bonami seat, right? And I thought, wow, for a, for a person of color from the continent to sit in that seat, and even Koyo said to me, it's, re it's good. It's good that you're sitting in that seat, you know? And I was like, yeah, it's good. And I was like hating that seat very much because <laughs> I, would, I, I would write to my patrons, you know, a Palestinian billionaire. Can I have $10,000, please, to fund this artist from Nigeria? And what do I get? I don't go to Chicago. It's not about that. This is about history making. This is about world building. And so, I suppose, the, the thing that, uh, to ask is, what, where do we truly leave our sediment? For me, it's, it's always in the publishing. It's always in the books. I feel that that is where we can leave an imprint. And so, because the locatedness of a place is always temporary. It's always transient. Those, just think of the fact that Almost every U.S. state is an employee at Will State, and you can go in tomorrow, and they can say bye bye, like, or, or you can say bye bye because you're not feeling like it. There's no employment law to protect you in most states, 
So it's, these are transient spaces. So how do you, as a historian of art, as a proponent of a certain network of situated knowledge, how do you leave that imprint? And, or how do any of us who are, have those sets of knowledge leave or sediment that for a, another person who could not be from a context that is, from, that is like ours? I mean, I'm, 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 I mean, you mentioned Okwi, um, and so this is very anecdotal. So one of, in the very beginning, I um, mean, of course, we know that Okwi started off as a, a poet, and then they set up the Kajano. If there's anything Okwi and his group were invested in when they started off was to make, make books and make big books, yeah. you know, because for them, visibility resided in yeah. the heftiness of the book, you know, because it was a, it was a statement, mm. you know. It was a statement, you know, and I, and I still think so. I mean, uh, Koyo is here, you know, uh, she's done projects with Raw where publication was very key. I mean, one of the projects um, Koyo did uh, in 2012 when I was in Senegal, which at that point I was very, I was, when we had a conversation then, I was critical, you know, was uh, the protest in 2012, the presidential election protest, which uh, happened and then a few months later, Koyo did a show uh, and then there was a publication that is actually a document of that process. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, you should have given time for it, for that to, to seat sediment and then respond. Mm -hmm. But then given what we know about the precarious nature of things on the continent, mm -hmm. she was smarter than I was at that moment to understand that you need to create a document mm -hmm. uh, because there was an urgency to create that document. You know? And so whoever is going to return to that protest tomorrow as a historical event, we begin to look for the archive of that protest and the document she produced four months later after that event occurred becomes an archive, you know. And so for me, I often think about, I mean, I wish I, wish I was independent, you know, but I know I'm, I mean, in my position, I do what I have to do because someone has to take on that responsibility. But I understand that there's still, there should still be a sense of urgency for the kind, the kind of work we do, um, because it's very important. You know, we still have many decades. Mm. We have many decades, if not many, yeah, many decades to come, to come, to come to speed with the rest of the, the world in documenting our visual history. You know, uh, which can leave. It's easy for one to buy a catalog of a show, mm. than one to actually travel to see a show. You know. Mm. Um, and so monographs, which is something that I take very personal, monographs of artists, which we don't do enough for African artists, uh, both the exhibition version and both the uh, publication version, is something that, that is, as Obama would say, it's, it, it represents the, uh, the fierce urgency of the now for us. Mm -hmm. you know, we should do more of that because that's how you write the artist into history. You know, that's how you create a canon yeah. uh, of the artist. And so it's something that is very, personal to me, very, I'm very passionate about, and I hope that I, I will be able to find the bandwidth um, outside of um, what I'm doing to, to do the thing that I think is necessary by all means, you know. Damn all consequences. I think that's a <laughs> wonderful way to end this brilliant session. Thank you so much, Mu, for joining us today. <laughs>